Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Teenagers are pampered with high wages, first-class working conditions and excellent facilities in education. Their outlook is centred in trashy books and films. The boys are hoodlums in embryo, defiant and uncouth, while the girls are brazen and unrefined. A rigorous period of military training might make men and women of them, if they had the courage to face it. Welcome to The Rest is History. Our subject today is, of course, teenagers. So, Tom Holland, you're a man who I always associate with youth culture and with <laughs> teenage brio. So here's says a question. Emails Dominic Sambra. Here's a question for you. Um, when do you think that's from? That quote. Okay, well, it mentions teenagers. Yes. And I know that the word teenager is a recent invention, 1944. Yeah, it is 1944. In America. Yeah. 1944 in America. So it must be after that. Yeah. Um, reference to military service. Uh, if it's Britain, um, this is a top historian at work using uh, forensic skills. So perhaps after after the end of um, conscription. So is this a reference to Beatlemania? Good guess. Good guess. Nineteen sixty-three. Um, good guess, but wrong. It's nineteen forty-nine. It's quite. It's quite early. And it's, that is uh, early. Can you guess the publication? And is it British? It is British publication. Uh, Daily Mail. It is the Daily is it? Mail. Yeah. <laughs> it is the Daily Mail in ninety four. Finger on the pulse it, of fashion a, as ever. It's actually a reader's letter. Um, and who so is the reader? Um, I Colonel. Can't, I don't have, Colonel. I don't, yeah, exactly. Bufton. No, that's a telegraph. That's not the mail. Yeah, it's all right. Um, it would be Colonel Bufton Tufton's wife in the Daily Mail. <laughs> yes. um, I uh, no, it's uh, it's interesting how early that is because, as you say, the teenager is invented in nineteen forty four. But I suppose anxieties about young people. Are as old as history itself, aren't they? I mean, everywhere, every point you look in human history, people are always complaining that the young have no morals. And yeah, but is the um, young equivalent to a teenager? Well, this is what I want to get into. That's the big question, isn't this it? Is, yeah. So you're right. I think it is 1944 that the teenager is invented, but young people have always existed, and yeah. I have no sense actually. I have no sense at all of what a 14 year old did in rome or greece or the periods you write about so explain were the teenagers in those days there must have been in some sense well um that we have um a question from joseph evans green who asks is the idea of a period between childhood and adulthood a modern invention and is there any similar idea in the ancient world and that's the really the key question isn't it because teenagers is it's it's a kind of coming an extended process of coming of age and I think it'd be fair to say that I mean, I'm going to admit this isn't something I've studied with any great attention, but I, I I would say that by and large the idea is that you come of age, so you have coming of age rituals. Yeah. Um. I mean, in Rome, you it's it's just the toga you, you put you on. Shave a toga. your beard. Yes. You you present your beard. 
the sh- your first shavings, you um, you get given, you, you put aside the toga of youth and you put on the toga of manhood um, if you're a girl. And it's much earlier with girl. So you, you hand over your doll and a thing called a buller, which you wore around your neck, which is a kind of charm, symbol of, of childhood. Um, but having said that, um, so there's, adolescence comes from a Latin word, adolescentia. But adolescentia is kind of basically it's from the age of 15 up to early 30s. Wow, that's a long. So there is a kind of the Romans do have a sense. I mean, basic, generally, particularly in the Republic, youth is is looked on with with considerable suspicion. So the Romans were like Daily Mail letter writers. They were the Roman Republic was very Daily Mail. You don't really become a proper adult till your late thirties. For instance, you can't run for the consulship till you're forty. And you think of all those portrait busts of, of Roman emperors. Uh, sorry, of, of absolutely Freudian slip there. Not of Roman emperors, of, of Roman uh, dignitaries from the Republican era. Ages prized. They all have crow's feet and baggy jowls. And but that's such a strange thing, Tom. When when so many, you're much more likely to die young. So in other words, you're saying people, lots of people who die, who live what to us would be into adulthood they're not they die before they considered full adults in rome yeah a lot because of them. they die at the yeah. age of 28 or 31 I, or something i think i mean certainly the, the the greeks as well and the romans have a sense that um children have to be shaped and molded and toughened up to become worthy of the citizenship that is going to be theirs yeah um and in greece by and large this is done as a kind of civic thing so in Sparta, famously, you have barracks. Um, in Athens, you have um, the Ephiboi who are, uh, it's a kind of military service. So that the city is doing it. In Rome, much more the sense is that um, it's up to the individual. It's Well, the father has incredible power. So he has uh, the patria potestas, which means that he can kill a son if he, he gives him any grief. I mean, essentially, you really? get, from a teenager, you can literally kill him. Um, and, the, and the father has this kind of incredible authority. Um, but that is something that is not tied to kind of teenage years. So there's a kind of amazing thing when, when the Romans are very into adopting. So if you want to pass on your patrimony to, to someone, you adopt someone. And the classic example of this is when Augustus is forced to adopt his stepson Tiberius because there's no other possible heir to, uh, to, to the empire. Yeah. And Tiberius, who at the time is Rome's greatest general. Um, he's, he's a distinguished statesman. He's held all the magistracies. He's a man of incredible sophistication and learning. He's fabulously wealthy. When he gets adopted by Augustus, he loses everything. He becomes dependent for, you know, basically kind of an allowance, kind of equivalent <laughs> to a teenage Does allowance Augustus on Augustus. Pocket money? <laughs> yeah. Augustus gives him pocket money. So it's, it's, that is, that is the kind of the sense of generational divide there is, is really, really strong. And, and I think a key part of it is that, um, specifically on the angle of youth, is that when you come, coming of age is also that you become sexually in control of your life. Yeah. So the risk is constantly that, 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 that before you become an adult, so before you come of age, you are going to be subject to all kinds of advances, whether you are male or female. And I guess for, that for girls, the, the big difference is that essentially you come of age when you're able to conceive. And that's a lot earlier than... So what's that? Well, than I our, mean, yeah, 13 or... Well, Juliet, Juliet and Romeo and Juliet is 12, isn't she? Yeah. So, so, she, so a girl at that point... So you become considered, They're considered an adult. 
They're, they're a woman. Yes. Yes. Um, and there's so. no sense. So there's no sense of a kind of a youth. I mean, a youth culture, the, the expression comes from 1942. So this is projecting way back. But there's no sense of a what we would call a youth culture among Roman well, teenagers, the, is there? There's, a, there's definitely a sense that um, that the young get up to all kinds of mischief. And there's a, a kind of sense that basically they should be allowed to, that, you know, let them sow their wild oats, but essentially they, they should get over it and then knock right. them down to more important things like conquering the Gauls or running for the consulship or something. So my, my sense would be, knowing nothing about it, that especially at the end of the Republic, that people are sort of bemoaning that uh, the morals of the current generation are worse than, you know, sort of Cato figures. Is that yeah. is that was that a thing? Did Romans often sort of say, "Oh, everything's going to the dogs," and young people today have no sense of standards and and all the sort of standard things people say about teenagers? It's it's a running joke in comedies that you have the 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 figure of the kind of the the irascible, censorious Daily Mail reader. That's my, that's me. <laughs> yes. So Dominicus Sandbrookus, and and then you have the um the kind of the young extravagant. Uh, Hellraiser, yeah. Tom Holland, exactly, exactly, and and this kind of does. This is a kind of political because, in a sense, the uh, the divisions in Roman society are all a, are kind of grounded in style. So the idea that you are a censorious, finger wagging conservative is associated with age, and the idea right. that you're a kind of hell raising guy who drives his zippy chariot with eight horses rather than with four is kind of associated with youth. And in the imperial period, this becomes a kind of crucial determinant as to whether you're a good or a bad emperor, basically. Yeah, so your so, Caligulas and your Neros are kind of... Uh, yes, so we've got a question about, I think, about Elagabalus, who... Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So from the splendidly named History of Tammany Hall podcast, the modern idea, some of the adolescent Roman emperors, Elagabalus, etc., who I think became emperor when he was 14 seem like the nightmare vision of giving a teen limitless power. How are they viewed in ancient times as children or adult rulers like any other? Well, basically, the Romans thought that, that certainly in the Republic, that you should only have power if you had wrinkles. And in a way, what's most radical about the figure of Augustus, and everyone can conjure up an image of Augustus, is that he is portrayed as a kind of youthful, preternaturally youthful figure. And he, that is how he's portrayed right the way up till he dies. You know, and he dies in, you know, when he's yeah. he, he, very old. Um, and that, again, is kind of drawing on the Greek idea that youth is beautiful and associated with divinity. So there's a kind of complex cultural nexus going on there. But I don't think you have anything that corresponds to, to a teenager, a, a kind of protracted age that we would associate with, with, with those particular years. I think that that is something much more recent. And yeah. therefore, I'm going to pass the ball on to you to, <laughs> to, no, to I tell me I think, how the teenager our idea of the teenager evolved i think it is a recent thing now um there's a brilliant book on this by a guy called john savage who some writer oh, some, yes. some listeners will know as the guy who wrote the definitive book on punk and the sex pistols and he has this book called teenage i think the creation or the invention of youth and he starts in the late victorian period and i think what he's basically saying is you know in the late victorian period you have the you have young people who we would now regard as adolescents who have spending money and they can define themselves as different from their parents. There's obviously and is it the spending money that's the key? I think it is the key. 
I mean, I think spending money is the because you know you are fifteen. If you have no money, there is no you have no ability to. It's very hard for you to create a culture of your own or to differentiate yourself from your parents or from you know you can't buy your own clothes. You can't buy you know sort of cultural products, whether they yeah. be comics or books or records or whatever. But I think when you've got that spending money, and this is of course the big age of consumerism, late Victorian America and Britain and France and so on. Then, then you can sort of forge this new identity. And and in his book, he basically says there is a his book is a sort of prehistory of the teenager, and he basically says there's about a seventy year period where people are sort of st- struggling to define what this person is, who's a girl or a boy between thirteen and eighteen or so. This is the age in which Baden Powell is inventing the Boy Scouts and. Uh, you have moral panics about people like Arthur Rimbaud, the French sort of teenage poet. And so there's a lot of stuff about teenagers, but they haven't really pinned down. People haven't decided on an agreed definition. And then it's really in the 1940s and it's in America. Um, so the country where consumer culture is, is sort of most vibrant and most dynamic, that you have the invention of the, the, the teenage magazine. So the, to 1944 is this big landmark year. You have a magazine called Seventeen. And it's the first real... And that's aimed ma- at girls. It's aimed at girls. And I think... Because all the boys are away fighting the Japanese. They are. But I think throughout this, right through into the 60s, 70s and so on, girls are absolutely, you know, they are central. They are the drivers because of teenage more culture. Or, or because um Yeah, I think because they have... Girls often have sort of part-time jobs. Um, but also girls, you know, Beatlemania is all about girls. So Beatlemania in the 60s is is driven by girls and girls, you know, it's boy bands rather than girl bands that drive pop and rock music. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who and so on. They're, they're often, their audience isn't always girls, but girls are the m- most loyal part of the audience. And girls spend more on clothes, they spend more on dance hall tickets, they spend more on magazines, on makeup. So there's a whole kind of cosmetics part of that market the boys don't enter into at all um so girls are the big drivers and girls magazines sell more than boys magazines do so i think girls drove the whole thing from the 1940s for the next 30 or 40 years can i just just going back to the the prehistory of that in the in the 19th century yeah because um there is a kind of in the 19th century and indeed into the 20th century there is a living link with the with the ancient world in the form of boarding schools where, yes, yeah. which are consciously modelled on the kind of the Spartan ideal that you yeah. have to take kind of young people and treat them like like animals to be broken in and tamed <laughs> yeah. and remoulded and reshaped. Yeah, and sort of Doctor Arnold. Yeah, so so yeah. so that's 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 a kind of Victorian thing, and that I, I mean I guess that kind of is providing a model for the Boy Scouts, isn't it? And the Girl Guides, the the idea that. You know, otherwise they'll all just run wild. And also, doesn't it also feed into the Hitler Youth? I think, well, I think the Hitler Youth, so if you sort of take the Hitler Youth as an endpoint, as what we would now see as a sort of uniquely sinister endpoint, the Hitler Youth makes sense to people in the 1930s in a way that it doesn't to us today, because they live in an age where people have always been part of youth groups. Uniforms. You know, and- there have been, all, yeah, and yeah. they've all often worn uniforms, and the uniform is not seen as sinister. So the Boy Scouts is exactly right as a kind of, it's not exactly a model, but it's part of the same constellation. I mean, there's all these in Germany in particular, 
they love all these stuff about sort of strange rambling groups where they go and commune with nature and and all this sort of stuff. They're very romantic. I mean, they're very idealistic. And you're right, I think, as well, that the public schools before that, this idea of the public school spirit and, you know, play up, play up and play the game. I mean, I love all this stuff, actually. But but all that sort of Dr. Do Arnold, Tom Brown school. Does, oh, I really, I you know that poem, the Henry Newbolt poem? Yes. Um, his, the hush in the hand close. Shoulder and, smoot. Yeah, up, I love all, I love that. I, I love that. I've been I've been reading that to my son since he was about two. You know, and with a tear you, in my a manly tear in my eye. Um, <laughs> and, and, and have you succeeded in shaping him into molding so, him into a? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I think I think be an um, interesting experiment. I mean, we're probably the only household in Britain where Billy Bunter features as a regular bedtime story. So Billy Bunter, that's yeah. So he he appears in a comic, doesn't he? The Magnet. I'm the obsessed magnet. with Billy Bunter. I'm so glad we've gone into Billy Bunter. I didn't see but, this coming but, but, at all. But, but that's a bit earlier, is it? Or is that so That's about 19... No, 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 no I mean, tar- but, but that's targeted at at what? What so kind of age group? I would say about... Probably from about 10 to about 15 or 16, I would have said. So very unexpected people. Those are by far the most influential well stories. Him, didn't all well loved, well, but magnet. people like Aniron Bevan. Aniron Bevan, the Labour firebrand founder of the NHS... He was banned from his father from reading magnets, sort of boys' stories, Billy Bunter stories. And he hid them, I think, under a railway bridge. And why was he banned? Because they were seen as um, not improving, not, right. uh, you know, they weren't serious. But but kid, lots of, if you read the, the memoirs of working class boys, boys particularly in Britain, in the first half of the 20th century, tons of them will say they learned about life from the Billy Bunter stories. And they learned they about, about what it was pluck, to be a man. Didn't they? Pluck about pluck is the word. Collective spirit about um, teamwork, and they they would say that their idol was this guy who's the captain of the remove, Harry Wharton, who's this sort of incredibly noble, um, brave, hardworking, dutiful figure. You know, the kind of man who um, he sort of enforces discipline among the other boys. He's chivalrous. You know, he'd always help a girl in distress. He's always fighting off footpads and members of the working classes who are trying to invade Greyfriars. You know, and Aaron Bevan was into this. Well, of course, the the people who are the baddies are the are sort of ruffians. They're they're footpads uh, who are always trying to get in and molest the boys or steal. But are, pre- this is in a, in a private school. Or, yeah, it is. But but so it just seems were, an odd thing for they were colossal of the Labour Party. To, but they were colossally popular among working class. Children. So there's a book called, uh, what's he called? Jonathan Rose? I can't remember. The Intellectual Life of the English Working Classes, I think it's called. And it talks a lot about these boys' stories and how much they, because the people who consume them are not other private school boys by and large. I think they are okay. people outside that, just like most Harry Potter readers don't go to boarding school. Okay. Okay. So in Britain and perhaps in Germany as well, perhaps less so in America, this sense that, um, the role models it's it's conformist it's um collectivist it's everything that today we tend not to associate with teenagers i think teenagers are terribly conformist okay they are they are but but they they're, they're conformist in the sense that they don't want to be conformist yes they're not they're, all they're, kind of saying oh please can i dress up in uniforms and march around <laughs> and, i mean no, but they want I mean, to join i know that they are kind they are kind of creating uniforms because yeah you know, mods and rockers, yeah, rockers and punks and, 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 and yeah. new wave. And, I mean, I know that's, but you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's quite a gear shift there. I mean, the John Savage book, the John Savage book, which you, which you mentioned does ha- have this amazing thing about, um, the German youth who were not joining, 
hear the youth with any great enthusiasm who were kind of listening to swing bands yeah, and the swing, to, to swing English kids. music yeah. and uh, in Hamburg. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like a Beatles so prehistory. 20 years before the Beatles yeah. went and played at the... And the see, that's such a great thing, isn't it, Tom? Because you don't think, I mean, before I read that book, it had never occurred to me that the Third Reich would have this vibrant oppositional youth, youth culture. Yeah, youth scene. Um, and that they were all obsessed with English music. Yeah, it's great. It, uh, the, 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 that's, that has parallels elsewhere in Europe. So, again, something that I hadn't really thought of. I, I, re- I remember reading Kingsley Amis's memoirs. And Kingsley Amis, who you th- novelist, you know, who you think of as this utter reactionary buffer, he talks about how he's. In the 1930s in South London or, or wherever he is, he's having these terrible rows with his dad about jazz. So he thinks jazz, now we think of jazz as a very tweedy and, and yeah. sort of old fashioned. But at the time, jazz has just come from America. So Kingsley Amos' his dad is, turn that awful racket. He down. is. He, that's exactly what's <laughs> happening. He's saying, what is wrong with you, boy? You know, take a cold shower that's and not, stop. That's not music. Yeah. Stop. And Kingsley was just like, oh no, this is the really cool music of the day. And, and so, you know, so I think, in the th- in the 30s, which we now tend to caricature as all flat caps and kind of George Orwell, I think in the 30s, you do have a teenage culture across the kind of industrialized world. And it's to do with music because you've obviously got record players. So already, you know, we have that sort of sense of, of a sort of youth culture emerging. So you've got the word youth culture and the word teenager both really being coined in 1944 and then obviously when the economy takes off at the end of the second world war that all just completely explodes okay but Dominic, i think that's enough of the of the of the prehistory for teenagers so you've set it up nicely uh, i think we should have a break now and then when we come back we should um we should have a look at the way that the notion of the teenager has evolved since the second world war so um let's do a very teenagery thing and go to a commercial break Hello, welcome back. Uh, we are giving you, I hope, some teenage kicks. Um, and uh, we've been looking at the the deep prehistory of the teenager and then the prehistory of the teenager. And we've now arrived, well, at the 40s and we're into the 50s, looking at the way that the concept of, of teenage culture um, evolves. And we, uh, Dominic, a question here for you from Alex. I think it's Shiphorst. Was James Dean the first teenager? Would that have been recognised back in the fifties, or has time given us that impression? So James Dean is the kind of you know leather jacket, yeah, um, hair sort of greased up, cold, lip. yeah, surly, yeah. Yeah, racing cars to the edge of cliffs, all that kind of. We've all done it. <laughs> is he the first? <laughs> no, he's not the first. Um, but I suppose, yeah, because the, 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 there is no first teenager, but the. Certainly by the end of the 1940s, the concept of the teenager is very well established. But I think what James Dean probably is, is he's part of a sort of, I don't know, is it a triumvirate or, or uh, you've got um, Frank Sinatra. So it's, not, it's more than a triumvirate. Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando, El, then Elvis Presley, the sort of the biggest one of all. People who define the teenage boy or the teenage young man. I mean, some of that, Frank Sinatra is actually much older, but the sort of, they are rebellious. They are glamorous. They are different from their parents and different from their elders. And that's obviously an American archetype. And then it's taken up in the rest of Western Europe. And Frank Sinatra is not drafted in the Second World War, is he? Is that right? I didn't so know. He, I, I know nothing about Frank Sinatra. Yeah. So he's, I think he's playing. He's, he's kind of 
doing gigs. I know he's, yeah, he's very, that's his breakthrough is the early 1940s. But he's in his 20s then already, but he's appealing to this new, he is the big star who appeals to this so new So this is proto-Beatlemania. This is the, f- oh yeah, much girls long kind before. Of, and basically, so, so, so girls in the 40s have, you know, they're at home. Yeah. But Boys are away. Frank Sinatra. Yeah. So, and, and, and so it's, presumably it's not a coincidence that this is when the word teenager starts to be marketed. Well, I think you've also got America's been through the Depression. So the Second World War restarts the engines of American capitalism. And that's why the word teenager is invented, because all these girls who are working, because as you say, the, the boys are away. So young women are flooding into the workforce. They have money. And people, I always think of youth culture and teenage culture. It's a colossal enterprise in separating young people from their money. You know, it's not about, I, I never right. think it's about idealism or romanticism. I think it's just a massive marketing exercise and of the, one of the most successful marketing exercises in history. And do you, do you think that, um, so when do people we now call teenagers start to identify themselves as teenagers? Well, what comes first, the marketing or the sense of identity? Oh, I think there or was are, a sense of identity already. So you had gangs. Um, you had sort of you had tribes and gangs before okay. the Second World War, but I think the point at which people would refer to themselves as teenagers probably comes in the nineteen fifties, right? And certainly so by the you become a teenager in nineteen fifty six or nineteen fifty seven, you think of yourself as a teenager and you use the word very unselfconsciously. So we've got a question from Matthew Butcher. You mentioned gangs. Yeah, was the moral panic in the fifties about teenagers both true and the first time this had been perceived? So that's. That is that is a, a kind of running theme, isn't it? That the moment you have teenagers, you have adults who are worrying about teenagers. Yeah, and but, they're I mean, generally seen as kind of bad. But you sort of said, didn't you, that that the people in the ancient world were worried about the, uh, yes. the young. They thought the young were unreliable. And so I think that has run. It's my sense is that that has run through history. But I think young- I think I think it's different because in the ancient world, there's the assumption that the young are, are just by nature problematic. And right, yeah, kind of irresponsible. Whereas I think what's distinctive, certainly since the war, and maybe even before that, is that it, it, this is a generational thing. And I guess that that for people in the fifties and sixties, it's particularly bruising because they feel that they've never seen anything like this before. That suddenly, you yeah. know, particularly in the sixties, I would guess. I think that's right. I think you see it. I think you do see it in the fifties, actually, Tom. And I think it were you, you first see it. It's not really a moral generation gap, but it's a. Uh, there's an article by Keith Waterhouse in the late 1950s in one of the British papers, and it says, you know, our children are changing. And he has all this stuff about they're bigger, they're taller, they reach puberty earlier, all of which is true because of their, their health is better and their diet is better. So young people are becoming mature much more quickly. They're much more self-confident. They're bigger. They're more sexually active. They have more money. They're more visible. They're kind of louder. And so that's when you start to get a lot of the sort of moral panic stuff. Um, and, and because there's always this sort of sense among when people talk about history that sort of poverty is, is a source of great anxiety and affluence is to be celebrated. But often affluence creates terrible anxieties of its own. And that's definitely what happened in the 50s and 60s. So teenagers with money buying shirts and buying magazines and records was profoundly unsettling to a lot of their elders. They kind of thought, you know, what are they doing? They're wasting money on rubbish and they don't listen to us. And they've got all this sort of, they're more articulate and they're confident and they're having sex with each other and they're playing their loud music and all this sort of stuff. And, and, you know, that's 
a huge part of the sort of social and cultural story of, let's say, Britain or America in the 50s and 60s. So in the, it, there's that famous comment by John Lennon that I think John Savage quotes, um, and he's talking about America and says that, you know, we always look to America because they had teenagers and nowhere else did. Yeah. Well, they had teenagers because they, were, they weren't going through austerity. Right. So in Britain and I guess Europe, the emergence of the teenager is also a repudiation of the, I mean, not just of austerity, but what had been cast as the virtues necessary to win a war. Yeah, Spartan so virtues. Kind of Spartan yeah. virtues. Absolutely. And they, they, they become objects of mockery on the, on the part of kind of cutting edge teenagers. I, I know that, that you will say that this was a minority pursuit and that <laughs> probably in the sixties, most teenagers were cutting their hair and joining no, but the you're right, corps the, the, or something. But teenage, just think about it. If you're a teenager in 1965, Tom, I mean, somebody starts up about the war again. I mean, you're kind of rolling your eyes and you're yeah. sick of, you know, shut up, granddad. You know, you're, you live with the legacy of it, but it's incredibly boring and tiresome to be told about it. So I think actually even teenagers who weren't rebellious, i.e. most teenagers, because they weren't, would probably have, you know, they were sick of being lectured about, oh, this was the spirit that of Dunkirk and and all that. They were much more resistant to that actually then, I think, than people are now because it was... You know, it was their parents who were lecturing them about it. The um, the the classic um illustration of that is if, yeah, the, uh, the Malcolm McDowell film is set in spectacularly brutal public school where everyone has to be kind of trained to go out and join the army or run the British Empire, right? Or and that's exactly. I think it's sixty eight. Is it sixty eight? It's Lindsay Anderson, and he yeah. goes back to his old his old school, Cheltenham, and he doesn't tell them what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. That. He he gets permission because it's his old school and he sort of says, I want to come and do this film about that school. Okay, so how much, for those who haven't seen it, um, it's it's about three rebellious boys uh, and there's, there's there's somebody in the film called The Girl who <laughs> yes. doesn't yeah, have a name. Yeah, you wouldn't do that now. And it ends, I, I, am I giving a spoiler? No, I, I mean, you that, can give it away. I mean, people Yeah, can... that, that, that it ends up with them kind of machine gunning everybody yeah. on, the, on speech day. And, and, uh, that's, and that's the ultimate sort of generation gap film i think isn't it really yes, i mean I it's sort so. of it comes at that moment in the late 60s when all the talk is of the, the generation gap yeah um which i think is actually a bit exaggerated so but, i don't think there is a colossal chip. but then what you get at the end of the 70s is new generation of teenagers turning on the previous generation of teenagers yeah so that's the kind of the essence of punk is to well actually you know what i you're right about that but i thought you were going to say something completely different oh, which what is i going to say that in 1979, first-time voters, so people who are 18, 19, oh. 20, 21, they're one of the biggest swing groups to Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives, which is it, which is, which if you were saying that, it would have been right because that is a repudiation I'm sure of, their 60s, one of, your books. of their 60s predecessors. But you're right, punk is also part of that. So punk is a repudiation of what's gone before. So, so then you start to get, I suppose now you're into the second generation of kind of classic teenage or third generation. And, and the really interesting thing then is that being a teenager is not just about repudiating mum and dad. It's about repudiating the earlier generation. The earlier generation. Okay. Teenagers. So there's a question here from Andy May, uh, who, who asks, looking from the perspective of 2021, obviously, why have those teenage tribes died out now? Will there be new ones in the future? Mods, by a million miles, they have the music and the style. Um, yeah. So Mods v Rockers is the classic. That won't mean anything probably to our non-British listeners. But in Britain, Mods v Rockers, it's the classic clash, isn't it? Because it's about class. It's about culture. Europe versus America. They're sort of all British political life is there in the clash of, of Mods and Rockers. 
Um, but but I guess what what uh, what Andy is alluding to is the sense that um, once once you've had the rebellion against boring parental generation, and then once you've had the teenage rebellion against the previous generation of teenagers, where do you have to go? I mean, in a yeah. way, and, and in a way, I guess the is is that adults have kind of remained teenage. That the, that's the, kid the big old. change, isn't it? That's the big change. So it's very difficult now for teenagers to rebel in the yeah. way that a teenager in the 60s rebelled. Because... I think that's a profound change from imagine when we were teenagers. See, when I was a teenager in late 80s, uh, early 90s, the thought that my dad might share interests with me would have been utterly unthinkable. Whereas now, you know, I share interests with my son who isn't even No, but you're raising yet. him on Kipling. Well, yeah, so there's every, so there's every prospect that he will be the sole teenager <laughs> in <laughs> In 2020s Britain, able actually to rebel against his father. Yeah, yeah, that, what a terrifying prospect that that will run off happen. and start reading that the Guardian. Never, and... That will never happen. Yeah. He knows better than to do that sort of. That sort of. <laughs> I that can't wait. Conduct. I can't wait. <laughs> but um, no, you're right. I think it's much harder. I, I, also, culture is generally so fragmented now that there are fewer tribes. I mean, those tribes do exist, and some of our listeners may well sort of tweet us and say, oh, you're forgetting these people or those people. But actually, I think there are far, you know, that that sort of ecosystem. So in Britain, that ecosystem, I mean, something like Top of the Pops plays such a colossal part in sort of defining what people listen to, but also how they looked. Um, and that but has gone, hasn't it? It's you, so you fragmented. Don't think, you don't think that that's just because, you know, we're two middle-aged men. Um, and we can't see what they see. We can't. I mean, isn't TikTok and well, I don't know? But that does create of, things. That does create I mean, common a common language and a common culture. But don't forget, if you Ted had talked to the mods and the rockers, or later on punks or new romantics, I mean, these were so mainstream that middle aged yeah. men would have been aware of them. So, in yeah, other words, yeah. they would have been featured. They were, you know, the Daily Mirror or the Sun would would publish sort of double page spreads with a guide to the latest. You know, what are your kids wearing? This kind <laughs> of thing. Really, <laughs> they really did do this sort of stuff. I mean, this was, they would have, it was a, it was a, it was part of mainstream culture in a way that. And so I don't teenage, think teenage life is tribes... a lot more boring as a result because, because we're not playing our role. We're not getting well, indignant well, about here's it. Here's Joey McCarthy's question. I don't know if it's the same Joey McCarthy. I think it is. An associate of this Our podcast. Producer. Yes. Uh, and he says, whatever happened to teenage rebellion, drug use, teenage pregnancy and youth all reduced massive in the past decade now you're the father of one ex-teenager and one still a teenager i think one still a teenager yeah so you must know all about this what has happened why have they why are they all so conservative if they are so conservative um i feel that this is rapidly mutating into a kind of parent daughter uh, <laughs> podcast of the kind that uh, i'm not really sure uh, what to say to that i don't i don't know i i mean i think that um there's always the risk of extrapolating from the personal to the yeah. uh, to, to I, I, certainly there are deep streaks of rebellion, and I would say one that's kind of hit just at the moment is um, veganism has hit our fridge. Right. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of annoying, but one that um, obviously we have to be supportive about. We don't have to. You've chosen. I, I kind to. of do. Well, I am. I am supportive and, and and admiring, but I'm not sure that that's that's rebellion necessarily, is it? And it it uh, segues neatly into a question from um, Alex Shiphorst again, who's absolutely on fire with his questions uh, in this episode. Um, I wondering whether historians in the future will look back at Greta Thunberg and see a 
is it Thunberg, isn't it? Thunberg. I see a transformation in teenagerhood, i.e. one that is more politicised, especially environmentally conscious, perhaps a rebel with a cause. Rebel and I would say that cause, that yeah. probably is true, but I'm aware that I'm saying that from the perspective of... Um, no, I think you're probably right. I think... Um, I mean, the other thing I would extrapolate from from uh, from my daughters is a, a, an absolute fascination with design, style, clothing, But that's dress. always been... That's always and that's been. always... So that does go back to... Uh, I mean, the, that would be recognisable to the readers of Seventeen magazine in 1944. Yeah. But yeah. I think you're right that the... I, I buy Alex Shiphorst's question i think it's a really interesting question about greater thunberg and the way in which she's become a kind of secular saint um and her i mean we've got some questions about joan of arc i know and, and that the youth her youth and the fact that she's a sort of a, a girl who or a young woman I, I guess she's still a girl technically who looks even younger than she is i think that obviously plays a colossal part in in her international appeal but i suppose the danger with talking about teenagers and idealism and I've always been very conscious of that in my own books about post-war Britain, is that it's very easy to be misled by the most articulate, the most highly educated. Yeah, well, well, that's um, a the running theme of, for you, isn't it? That the, yeah. the more the more the peacocks, and I guess the peahens, uh, if peahens had dramatic tales, um, yeah. that they are they are more visually striking. And so they're the ones who appear in the books and get the documentaries and yes. appear on the postcards and things. Whereas... Um, I guess you'll tell me the vast majority never rebelled. No, they didn't. Just kind of went I mean, to school, I went to university, most... or got a job, or, and became adults. And I mean, my two sort of my, one of my standard facts on this is when the Rolling Stones were busted by the police for drug possession and were sent to prison, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Um, the The Times published an editorial saying they had been unfairly punished and they should be let out. Who breaks but, a butterfly on a wheel? Exactly. William yeah. written by William Rees-Mogg, father uh, Jacob of Rees- yes, yeah. but. <laughs> Opinion polls showed that young people themselves thought they should be imprisoned. Um, so young people were not on the side of it wasn't an, an old establishment versus a, a liberal younger generation. That actually the, the younger generation were just as. And if you look at polls generally of young people in the sixties, they're very anti-immigration. They're very anti-student protest. They're very culturally conservative on lots of kind of moral. But isn't that? I mean, that's that's a crucial because you're not just rebelling against your parents. You're also distinguishing yourself from your your boring peers. Yeah, and that's why you have the magazine. So if you're you're reading the right magazines and you're going to the right shops, that's where tribes come from. And perhaps yes. the, they're never the, a group. The, perhaps, are they homogenous? Yeah, but perhaps of. the kind of teenage identity, the more it's percolated out, the less opportunity there is to to rebel because basically everybody is wearing, uh, you know, kind of rebellious clothing is no longer rebellious. It doesn't have that kind of cachet. Yeah. But also I wonder whether, Tom, actually, you, you're asking that question makes me wonder whether the our sense of the teenager will have any, how long teenagers will exist for. So in other words, we can agree that adolescence existed before 1944, but teenagers have a history. They had a starting point. But you could argue that teenage culture will have an end point, especially as younger children now have more money as well. And that adults are, as you say, becoming kidults. The very concept of a teenager seems less to have less traction. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, than it, yeah. Than so it, maybe it'll be a, a kind of interesting foible of sort of late twentieth century, late 20th century yeah. culture. And yeah, I mean, fascinating. Um, I, I think we're closing to an end. Could I just put in uh, one question, uh, which is from um, an old friend of mine, and we met when we were teenagers. Um, <laughs> oh, nice, Charlene, who has sent in a, a broad brush question. Um, 
And she asks, it's just a given that teenagers think no adult understands them. So that's yeah. Kevin the teenager. <laughs> but which era was the very worst time to be a teenager and why? Wow. Um, I mean, I guess the answer to that is worst the worst time, time to be a teenager is what, you know, for, it's, it's going to be the same for everyone. I mean, if you're being slaughtered. Yeah, by some so, invading so actually, army, it doesn't really make a difference. So there's you're, no point in asking the question that way, is there? I suppose the question, answering the question, we should answer as in specifically a teenager rather than just you're in the middle of a war and well, the Russians. Having are, said, although having said that, when the Persians uh, stormed Miletus, the yeah. end of the Ionian Revolt, uh, early fifth century, uh, all the adults were slaughtered. The girls were carried off to the harems. The boys were castrated and carried off to be eunuchs, and Obviously, yeah. genital mutilation has been a running theme in this. Um, this is the third this podcast, podcast almost in a row. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that would be bad. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a teenager in. Um, yeah, but that's not. That's a specific Ionian Miletus. That, that's a specific. That's a, a bad bit of luck. But it doesn't mean that the culture itself was anti-teenage, does it? I think if there's a moment when it's when the the generation gap is, well, I mean, Britain in the early eighties. I mean, there were some schools in Britain in the early eighties where they gave children lessons on how to sign on for the doll um, before, in, the, in the summer term because they knew that yeah. almost all of them, 160 people would leave the school and there are only two jobs in the town. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty bad time to be a teenager. So I think the early 80s is probably economically when massive youth unemployment, as bad as, yeah, yeah, as yeah. you could imagine. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's been the situation in France for about the last 30 years, hasn't it? Where they have 25% youth unemployment. Which would and be, you wouldn't say that that um, 1930s Germany would would count as we're not counting them as teenagers because the idea the te- the word hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, because I think it's also a bit of a special case, yeah. isn't it? Okay. I mean, I'm sure there must be people who. Well, the really interesting thing is there must have been people who lived through the Third Reich as teenagers, but perhaps just missed being called up to fight in the war or right at the end, for whom their teenage years may not have actually been. They may not remember their teenage years specifically as, as terribly bad, as if they were in a family that was supporting the Nazis and you know they weren't Jewish or anything like that. I mean, that's the sort of interesting and quite slightly disturbing thought that these swing kids that we were talking about in Hamburg, you know, was life terrible for them? Well, it was when the British yeah, I think it was bombs on them. Um, I think it was terrible also because they they were a constant and you know under constant risk of being raided by the Gestapo and. Sent to labour camps or the but I mean, what's really Russian interesting, front. Tom, what's really interesting is that we always think of teenagers. We had tons of questions about this, about idealism. Uh, but that idealism can often be very, it, it's not always a good thing. So idealism, I mean, lots of young people really enthusiastically supported the Nazis. There's a very famous account by a girl called Melita Mashman. And she talks about, you know, she was a, a young girl in Berlin in January 1933, brimming with kind of teenage enthusiasm and teenage idealism. And she watches the torchlit parade. Hitler has just become Chancellor of Germany. And she is absolutely suffused with this love of country, desire to join the movement, you know, all this sort of teenage idealism yeah. that we can recognise. And of course, it's utterly misapplied into this obscene project. But the, I mean, the idea that teenagers properly are idealistic i mean that's a, that's another legacy of the french revolution isn't it i mean we, we talked about this about how so many of the revolutionaries um were very very young yeah i guess it blends with the, the romantic period where lots of 
the kind of the poets are, are very young as well. I think that's, I mean, I think that's where that idea comes from because certainly the, you know, the, the, the premise for earlier periods through the Middle Ages back to, to the ancient world is that people we would now call teenagers are essentially feral and dangerous and have to be yeah. broken in and that's my tamed position. and dis- <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, I think that's the perfect note on which to end. The I didn't even reason. like teenagers when I was a teenager. <laughs> the man they cannot gag. He knows he's been there. <laughs> that's William um, Hague. That was William Hague's slogan when he was writing Colin I know the News it was, of the World. Is- <laughs> Where has he been? Nowhere. <laughs> what happened to him? <laughs> He'd been to Richmond. That was about it, I think. <laughs> uh, I think that's the perfect note, isn't it? On which to end? Yeah, it is. It is. The super well, teenage always... saw away episode. I think um, we should... William Hague, of course, did come to fame as a teenager. That's why I mentioned him, Dominic. Yeah. Yes! We should always that's try to end point. every podcast on William Hague <laughs> or other failed Tory leaders. This is the podcast that has a theme <laughs> on teenagers and ends with William Hague. Thanks ever so much for listening. We will see you uh, in a few days where we are talking about the Aztecs uh, and we have some quite interesting details about um, children and uh, young people in the Aztec period. Uh, so and do tune in then. Gentle mutilation once again. See you then. And, and genital mutilation. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.